All right, we can turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14 this morning. The title of our message today is God's End Time Judgments. Uh, Last time we concluded looking at the verses in Revelation 14, uh, verses 14 through 20, and saw that in the end times, according to this passage, there's going to be this great harvesting of people, uh, which uh, is a reminder that when we die, we face judgment before the Lord. And uh, this is true of believers. This is true of unbelievers. This is true of Jewish people, Gentile people, people from uh, all walks of life and all times of living, according to the scriptures, uh, people will face judgment uh, before God, who is our creator. So when we see this idea of Jesus coming again, uh, oftentimes we will say Jesus is coming again the second time in judgment. Well, yes, that's true. But uh, this is something that not just the people at the end of the tribulation face, but it's in actuality something that we all face. So while this passage doesn't necessarily directly raise the idea of facing God in judgment, nevertheless, it is, it's it ought to be right there, uh, kind of behind behind the scenes, if you will, this fact that we do all face judgment. And this is something that we all have in common. You know, they often say uh, the only thing that's uh, for sure in this world is death and taxes. Well, you can add another thing to that list, and that is being judged before holy God. And the scriptures reveal reveal that in in several places. So in our in our study of Revelation, we we find ourselves here during this tr- future seven year tribulation period. That's what's being described in Revelation six through really the end of verse nineteen, and it can be broken down. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter nineteen, verse twenty one. Uh, and it, the tribulation period, this future seven-year tribulation period being described in these chapters can be broken down this way. There, there are seal judgments that we've studied in Revelation chapter 6. Then there's an intermission or break in the action to describe things that perhaps took place during those sealed judgments, but could also be taking place in the future. And then there we saw the seventh seal, which led into the trumpet judgments, the book of Revelation being chronological in a lot of what is presented, but not everywhere. So it's, it's not an easy book to put all the pieces together. But if you think about it, uh, that these judgments are being laid out for us chronologically as they happen. First will be the seal judgments, then will be the trumpet judgments. Then finally, there are a series of bold judgments that we'll see in chapter 16. And interspersed in between those judgments are these intermissions where we get some more information about what will take place during this tribulation 
period. And that's where we, we find ourselves in the second intermission between the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments where we're getting this litany of information about future events. Chapter 12, why these things are even taking place in the, in the first place, because Satan is opposed to God and his plan for the world and wants to disrupt God's plan. That's essentially what Revelation chapter 12 is about. Revelation 13 shows how in this future tribulation period, the two main principles that Satan will use, the Antichrist or the first beast and the second beast who is this false prophet. And then in Revelation 14, we get a view to the future. Remember, this book is written to, to literal churches in the first century. That's what chapters two and three are about. And so uh, it's written to believers. It will become very important to the generation of people who are living during the tribulation period. Uh, as it, I can assure you, it will be preserved for them, and they will be able to, to read it and get an understanding of what's happening to them and what's going to happen in the future. And those people deserve some encouragement. They deserve something to look forward to, as it, this will be an unprecedented time of, of disruption. Uh, you know, we think the last two years have been bad. <laughs> oh, no. That is nothing compared to what is going to be taking place during this seven-year tribulation period. So chapter 14 looks forward to the future when they will be with Christ uh, in the kingdom period because we, the Bible tells us very clearly that this tribulation period will lead up to Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over this earth in a kingdom of his own making. So chapter 14 pictures that for these people. There's ultimately victory in Christ. You will be with him as a, as a believer. And then he lays out in the, the portion that we looked at last time that there's actually going to be a separation between good and evil. The good will go into the kingdom. The evil will be excluded from the kingdom. That's what we looked at last time. And then in chapter 15, we'll see the bowl judgments introduced. But today, we'll, looking at God's end time judgments, we'll see that, that people are going to be judged. That's what's laid out for us. Uh, kind of the event that leads to that judging is what's described in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, at least for the people who are alive during that time period anyway. Then we'll look at the judgments that God's word lays out for us that all people will face. And then uh, how can we know for sure? I saw a, a video last night that said that uh, George Barna, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He does surveys of, of Christian churches, essentially, and pastors. I've actually participated in a, in a few of them. I don't, I don't think I did this one. It was from a while ago, so I don't really remember if I answered the questions or not. But he uh, 
came to the conclusion from the data that it was 31% of senior pastors in America say that people can get to heaven by just being good people, uh, which is astounding. 31%. A third of churches are teaching that you can, it's all going to work out fine if you're just a good, a good person. Uh, and whether we want to admit it or not, that is, that is not uh, an objective and objective standard. So I, so I could never be sure. Am I good? Am I good enough to, to get to be with God? So we'll look at how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure that this judgment that I face in the end times is going to work out okay, is going to work out good? The Bible tells us that we can know for sure. So we'll look at that. So people will be judged. This is what we saw last time uh, in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. There it is on the screen. The font's probably too small for you to be able to read, but if you have a Bible, you have it in front of us. I won't take take the time to to read that again, but essentially what it says is that Jesus Christ is pictured in the opening verses there on a, on a white cloud with a golden crown on his head and having a sharp sickle, and he reaps the earth with that sharp sickle. And then in verse 17, another angel is pictured who also has a sickle, and it's given to him to reap from the vine, it says, the vine of the earth. And what is reaped by that second angel is thrown into a wine press and uh, is crushed and trodden outside of the city. Verse 20 says that the blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles, picturing Jesus' second coming and the incredible, unprecedented amount of death and destruction that is going to take place there. So again, this setting, the setting for chapter 14, again, we're in, the, we're in an intermission. We're not advancing the, the chronology of what's happening. We're just kind of looking at the overall picture here in chapter 14. And this particularly looks to the end of the tribulation period. It doesn't mean that as in our study that we've made it to the end, it's just looking to the end to see as a means of encouragement what's actually going to take place. So in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14, we saw the 144,000 Jewish witnesses pictured with Christ on Mount Zion, which the Bible is, uh, which is a literal place in Israel where Jesus will come again. Uh, to Jerusalem. He's essentially being pictured there with these 144,000 in his kingdom at the end. In verse 8, we saw that Babylon was fallen as announced by an angel. Babylon being like all of the places mentioned in the book of uh, Revelation, a literal place, a place that will rise to prominence, uh, assume its role that it has always had, or at least since Genesis chapter 11, that's a pretty long time ago in, in biblical history, 
a pretty wide swath of time there that Babylon has been opposed to God and his plan for the world. It will one day, again, rise to prominence. I I have uh, a few articles about that waiting, waiting in the wings for Sunday school to describe how quickly cities can be built and rise up. It, it is not beyond the realm of possibility that an entire city could be raised up in Babylon and become essentially the headquarters of the world. That's what the Bible says is going to happen, but it's going to be destroyed. Uh, according to verse 8 of Revelation 14. And then there is this great doom we saw in uh, Revelation 9 through 13. God graciously informing the people of the world that, that if you take this mark, if you worship the beast and Satan, you are doomed. And it's a, a word of warning, so don't do that. Uh, God is telling the people there in verses 9 through 13. Again, so looking to the end of the tribulation. And the fact of the matter is that uh, what is described in verses 14 through 20 is people essentially, the, the end of people's lives. And when we, are, uh, when we die, when our physical lives come to an end, we are going to be judged. When this uh, period of time ends, this tribulation ends, uh, we are moving into a new phase, what we call oftentimes a new dispensation uh, of, of time as described in the Bible. It is going to be a time of righteousness and holiness and God himself living with people. So something dramatic is going to have to take place for Jesus Christ in his glory, living, ruling, and reigning on this earth. Not everybody is going to be privileged enough to enter into that kingdom because it's going to be a holy kingdom. And a holy God demands a holy presence. We see this right from the very beginning of the Bible. We kind of disregard these these, uh, truths that we see in the Bible to our own peril. Genesis 1.31 says that God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So God created everything in six literal days. He looked at it in the end and saw that, that it, this is very good. It's not just good, it's very good. It's perfect. As a matter of fact, there's no death. There's only life and love and fellowship with God. This is the way life was created to be. And Adam and Eve were there and they met with God face to face. They, they dwelled with him in the garden. But as soon as they sinned, something uh, dramatic took place. God wasn't there anymore. God wasn't there uh, with them to dwell with them and to interact with them face to face as he was before. Well, the Bible tells us that in the future, that's the way it's going to be again. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 
says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That is where this world is headed after this tribulation period, uh, living in the kingdom period, and then into eternity, we are going to dwell with God himself forever. And just like the kingdom period, which is sort of the, the, the front porch, if you will, to eternity, not everybody is going to be allowed to live in perfect unity, perfect fellowship, perfect harmony with God. You will have to uh, be judged to be allowed to be into this period of eternity of living with God. And it's going to be a, a time of perfection. Uh, Revelation 21 goes on, says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So in order to dwell with God in his holiness, in his righteousness, we too need to be determined to be right. We need to be allowed to be in that. That's what we see in Genesis, early Genesis, where sin separated us from God. And it's very appropriate that the last two chapters describe, you can look at Genesis 1 and Revelation 21 and 22 as sort of describing the same thing. Perfect life with God for eternity. That's the way he designed it. That's the way it will be in the end. And everything in between Revelation 1 and or Genesis 1 and Revelation 21 and 22 describes how God makes it possible to live with him in perfect unity for eternity. It's not a story of how we clean ourselves up and get right with God. It's a story of how God cleans everything up for us to believe in, in what he's done for us so that we can live with him forever. So the fact of the matter is that we face judgment when we die. Hebrews nine twenty seven, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. We have to be judged to see whether or not we're worthy to be with God for eternity. And so in this, uh, in this passage in Revelation 14, as I've mentioned before, it is, it's a picture of the end of the tribulation. There are two gatherings here. This is in keeping very much so with uh, Scripture and passages that we, have, that we looked at last time, a myriad of these passages. But from the very beginning, that's what John the Baptist said Jesus was coming to do. He was coming to lay out the facts of the matter that we 
face a harvest at the end of our lives, that we face this judgment at the end of our lives. Matthew 3.12, John the Baptist speaking, he says his, speaking of Jesus Christ, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with with unquenchable fire. That's what uh, Jesus is going to do. And he laid the groundwork for that, of course, in his first coming. He didn't come and gather the wheat into his barn and, and burn up the chaff uh, when he came the first time. No, he laid the, the groundwork for it. He, he put it out there for you. Okay, do you want to be gathered into the barn or do you want to be burned up like chaff? If you will, as we're going to see, believe in me and trust in me, you will be gathered into the barn. If you reject me, reject what I will do for you, then you will be burned up like the chaff. And so in this end, we see uh, in Revelation 14, we get a picture of the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes again and he gathers the wheat into his barn and sends the chaff to be uh, burned in the unquenchable fire. And this all coincides with the end of time, this battle of Armageddon that we'll get to in chapter 16. It happens when Christ comes again. It's going to result in this enormous bloodshed that we see. And it's also a picture of, we looked at last time of the Matthew 13 parables, the, the wheat and the tares, uh, the, the wheat being gathered, the tares also being gathered and burned. Uh, we saw the parable of the dragnet where at the end of time, Jesus is saying at the end of the tribulation, before the kingdom begins, is, there's going to be this dragnet thrown out. It'll be drawn in the good fish will be separated from the bad fish. And the event known known as the battle of Armageddon or the second coming of Christ is going to result in this incredible bloodshed that's mentioned in uh, verses 19 and 20. Uh, And this, again, the second coming, uh, oftentimes we will look at it as one one thing, uh, one day or one event, and Jesus is coming to the Mount of Olives and his feet will touch down there, as it says in Zechariah, and the mountain will split and all of these various things. But there's also this battle in Megiddo or, or uh, Armageddon, as it's called. Uh, there's a description of, of Jesus we saw coming again in Isaiah 63 to Basra. And so when we put all the pieces together, we see that really Armageddon is more of a campaign than it is a snap your fingers one time event uh, that takes place. Several things are going to take place and Revelation 14 describes this wrath being poured out in people uh, dying when Jesus comes again and the blood flowing for about 200 miles. Well, uh, this line that goes from Megiddo in the north that's very prominent in Jewish history, as we talked about last time, 
that goes down from Megiddo and then into Jordan there at Petra. If you'll remember, that's a potential place, at least potential place, where the Jewish people could escape to at the midpoint of the tribulation. Uh, We talked about that last time. Uh, There in Jordan, that red line that goes, if you Google or Google Maps directions from Megiddo to Petra, the roads that you will find are draw a line that are pretty close to that pathway that is designed that is on our map here and that's because there's that's a low point in the in the geography and uh, that's where the roads are that go between those two places and google maps will tell you that if you drive from megiddo to petra it's about 343 kilometers uh, according to or on the roads anyway and you stick that into your conversion because your conversion app because we're Americans and we don't know what a kilometer is. And it will magically tell us that that distance driving between Megiddo and Petra is 213 miles. That's pretty close to 200 miles. Those are two places that we're fairly certain Jesus is going to go to when he comes again, and the blood is is said to flow for that that amount of distance. Interesting, to say the least. And this is all going to take place on our chronology. This is a, a chart we're going to see this several times today. This, what Jesus is speaking of here, is at the end of the tribulation period. Before the kingdom begins. That's what uh, is described in the Matthew 13 parables. The kingdom of heaven is like wheat and the tares. The kingdom of heaven is like that because before the kingdom begins, the wheat is going to be gathered in and the tares are going to be burned. They're going to be excluded from the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet being thrown out that's pulled in. The good fish are separated from the bad fish before the actual kingdom period begins. Revelation 14, Jesus is going to come and gather the harvest from the earth into the kingdom. And the angels are pictured as gathering the, the vine or the grapes to be gathered and thrown into this wine press. At the end of the tribulation before the kingdom period begins. These events are going to take place. So that is the fact of the matter is that all people face this judgment, not just those who happen to be alive at the end of the tribulation period. (laughs) Uh, We've seen that upwards of half the world's population is going to die before the end of the tribulation period. So that, that doesn't mean that they're, oh, whew, good thing. <laughs> I, I died from the uh, fourth seal judgment, so I don't face judgment in the end. No, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches that we all face various judgments, even believers in Jesus Christ. And, and there are essentially four judgments that the Bible 
lays out that are often uh, thought to be all the same judgment. And that's, that's a big problem because there are distinctions in the judgments that the Bible lays out. And if we see it all as one judgment, that causes a whole lot of issues in our understanding of the future and the end times in particular. So Paul, in his writings, made very clear that believers in Christ also are not exempt from judgment for our works. Uh, And This is not a a statement that means that, well, boy, uh, my good then is going to have to outweigh my bad for me to be able to get into into heaven, enjoy life with God forever. No, that is not at all what it is saying. But it is saying that our lives matter as believers. What we do with our lives very much matters. We are, as we read in 1 Corinthians 3 in our scripture reading, as believers in Christ, 1 Corinthians 3 is just a fascinating portion of scripture describing the fact that as believers, we're not all the same. Uh, There are infants in Christ. There are uh, immature believers in Christ. There are mature believers in Christ. There's some believers are sometimes referred to as carnal believers. And some uh, segments of Christianity are going to try to tell you that, oh no, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. You're, if, if you're a quote unquote carnal Christian, well, you're really not a Christian at all. And man, I wouldn't sleep very good if, if that's <laughs> the kind of theology that I believed in, because sometimes uh, you, we, we all have to be honest and admit that at some time or other, we, we're carnal, we're fleshly in our, in our thoughts and our actions and these kinds of things. And if that excludes me from being a Christian, I'm in trouble. And in fact, that's exactly contrary to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It tells us that, that people face judgment in the end and we're not getting in to heaven based on our own righteousness. Rather, we are getting in based on Jesus's righteousness and the fact that we have trusted in his righteousness. That's what 1 Corinthians 3.15 means when it says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Verses 10 through 15 of 1 Corinthians 3 are describing this judgment seat of Christ that we face as believers. Romans 14.10, Paul says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. A letter, the book of Romans that's written to believers. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He said this to the Corinthians. Interesting that he needed to remind the Corinthians on more than one occasion that they faced Judgment. They're known as probably the most carnal uh, church that Paul or anybody wrote a letter to. 
2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then we have our passage that we looked at in, uh, or that we read in our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 3, describing this judgment uh, that, believers face in the end at some point in time that we'll look at here shortly when we are going to face this judgment and some more details about it here shortly, but we kind of get the groundwork for it here that we are going to be judged about how we have built on the the foundation of Christ. How have we lived our lives or are we living for eternal things with eternal motives. That's uh, pictured here as the gold, silver, and precious stones. Or are we doing things of no value? Uh, Are we doing things with wrong motives? That's pictured here as the wood, hay, and straw. The precious metals and stones will make it through the judgment. They will be tested with Fire and they will come through that fire. Of course, the wood, hay, and stubble or straw will be burned up, but the person himself will enter through the judgment, pass through this judgment, saved, yet so as through fire. So this is obviously, by definition, if every person is passing through this judgment saved, then this can only be for believers because that's what the Bible teaches about salvation. Only believers, only people who are trusting in God are going to, and his provision for sin, are going to enter into this kingdom period in the future, and then also into the eternal period that's described in Revelation 21 and 22. So the the first judgment that is possible for uh, people to face is this judgment seat of Christ, or sometimes what is what we refer to as the Bema seat, Uh, just being a description of uh, something that first century people very much would have understood, this Bema seat, it's where a ruler, uh, Caesar, or some sort of governor would sit on a seat that was lifted up and people would come before him and he would uh, oftentimes dole out rewards while he is sitting on this judgment seat. It wasn't really a, a place where people would go to be punished. It was a place where people would go to receive a a reward. And so the judgment seat of Christ, there's uh, some distinctions here that make it very different than the other judgments that we're going to see. It is only for believers. That's what we saw in, in Romans 14. And also in 1 Corinthians 3, where this judgment is described. And it is a a determination of reward only. It is not a judgment where anyone is going to be physically or mentally punished or undergo some sort of retribution for the wrong things that they have 
done. Uh, now, why is that? How can, we, how can we know that? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming with a reward for believers. Second John 8, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Jesus is, is standing at the door with his reward ready to be handed to believers. We see that also in 1 Corinthians 3.15, most primarily, just the obvious description of people uh, passing through this judgment, passing through the fire of judgment and receiving only a reward. Now that Now you could certainly lose reward. You could be going in to face this judgment as a believer, understanding that you're standing before Christ as a believer, that your salvation is sure because you've trusted in him. But in the back of your mind, you could also be thinking, well, I'm going to get a good reward because, you know, after all, look at all the great things that I did in my life. But God knows our hearts and he knows our our motives and our methods and the things that we were thinking so we could lose reward in the in the uh in respect of our motives may not have been correct so we could actually lose a reward as we pass through this judgment and passing through fire and having things burned up that you thought were good um, might not be that pleasant of an experience. So it doesn't, it's uh, been compared to a, a uh, graduation ceremony. Samuel Hoyt, by the way, has written a wonderful book on the judgment seat of Christ. And I believe it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, and you can look that up uh, where he describes this, compares it to a graduation ceremony. Now, the valedictorian can come to graduation with no regrets. Yeah, I came through. Now you can have more than a 4.0 GPA. Uh, I did everything wonderfully, and I'm getting this reward of graduating number one in my class. Nothing bad to say about that particular person. The other guy who's scraping through with a 1.6 GPA and you know just made it is like oh I made it through but you know I probably could have done a lot better uh it's, so it's kind of a similar similar description of what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be nobody's getting punished at the graduation ceremony uh, everybody is graduating. If you were if you were going to get punished, uh, you weren't at the ceremony uh, for the graduation. The judgment seat of Christ is similar. We, as believers in Christ, there is no punishment left for us in this regard. Doesn't mean we don't face the consequences of our sins in this life. That, that is completely different. Uh, situation. If you go out and murder somebody, uh, yeah, I hope you're caught and punished for you, for your sin. There are consequences for our sins Make in this life. Make no mistake about that. But the beauty of the Christian life and the 
truth of the scriptures is that if you have trusted in Christ, there is now no condemnation for you uh, in the afterlife, if you will. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 makes very clear that Jesus took all of this punishment upon himself. That was the whole point of him going to the cross is to take all of the consequences or all of the punishment, if you will, for our sins upon himself. He bore that so that we could be made right by trusting in what he did for us. Because all of our righteous deeds are going to add up to zero in accounting for our sins against the holy God. Only Christ could take that upon himself and pay the penalty for our sins. So then we are made right by trusting in him. He's taken all of that. All of the punishment has been transferred from me to Christ. And if that doesn't make you grateful for what Jesus did on your behalf, I'm not sure what will. If that doesn't motivate you to want to live your life for this one who took everything, took the eternal consequences of your sin upon himself, again, I'm not not really sure what will motivate you to do that. Furthermore, there are crowns promised for the believer. There are five different crowns mentioned in Scripture for the believer uh, that it would seem will be given out in this uh, judgment seat of Christ judgment or this Bema seat of Christ that occur that will occur in the future. Now, this doesn't mean that this is all of the crowns or that these are uh, the only ones that, oh, you better get into one of these groups. Otherwise, you're not going to receive any reward. Perhaps there will be other rewards. Not a, not a comprehensive list, but these just happen to be five crowns that are mentioned for believers uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul mentions the incorruptible crown, which is a reward for being faithful in the spiritual life. Now, that, that is one that each and every one of us as a believer in Christ is eligible to receive. We can all be faithful in the spiritual life. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. We compete according to the rules of God's world, essentially. That's the the spiritual game that we are involved in. Are we going to follow the rules or are we going to make our own rules and follow those? If we compete according to the rules of, of God's spiritual world that he created, we do it in self-control. We have this incorruptible crown to look forward to. There's also a crown of rejoicing, sometimes called the soul winner's crown, 1 Thessalonians 
2.19 says, Paul again says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul saw these Thessalonians as being a crown for him when Jesus comes again for us because he had won them to Christ. He had he was the one who gave them the gospel that they believed, not because Paul was so great, but because the things he was saying was so great. But Paul, and being faithful to that, was looking forward to this crown of rejoicing. There's also a crown of righteousness. Here's another one that, yeah, you don't have to be the pastor of a church or, or the... the uh, soul winner, elder, or whatever, uh, whatever you want to uh, call it. No, here's one that we're all eligible for, the crown of righteousness, a reward for godly living in light of Christ's return. Did you know that Jesus is coming again and that he could come again at any moment for you? That's why the, this idea that is that seems to be very prominent in Christendom, this idea of Teaching a pre-tribulation rapture, oh, that's dangerous. That's only going to lead to people, you know, just doing whatever they want. They're not, if they think they're just going to get raptured out of here, then we can just, uh, then, oh, all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. Well, I guess you can, but that would be very unwise because uh, according to the scriptures and according to a pre-tribulational rapture doctrine, that means... Well, Jesus could come again before this sermon is over. I could be, he could come again, take me to the father's house and I could stand before Christ in judgment at any moment. I don't have to look at the newspaper and say, well, oh, did you see that article that uh, actually Turkey and Israel are uh, normalizing relations? Oh, so that means Ezekiel 38 and 39 isn't going to happen tomorrow. So... And that happens uh, before Christ comes again. So, ah, man, I can just sort of do whatever I want. I'll get right with the Lord later. No, pre-tribulation rapture teaches he could come again for you in the next blink of an eye and you could be standing before him in judgment. And if you understand that and you're living faithfully, in a godly manner, living according to God's rules and his spiritual world, you have a crown of righteousness to look forward to. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon, he goes on, First uh, Timothy or Second Timothy four eight is really the verse that we're the most interested there in terms of the crown of righteousness, a reward for godly living in light of Christ's imminent return. He could come at any moment. We are looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist that we read about in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. There's also a crown of glory for the faithful pastor, according to 1 Peter 5.4. Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive 
speaking to the leaders of the church that he was writing to, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's also, here's another one that is eligible for everyone, every believer, the crown of life, a reward for enduring trials and persecution. We uh, tend to think of trials and difficult times in our lives as something bad. We ought to look at it as an opportunity. You're just, you're racking up points for the crown of life, uh, as it were, which isn't necessarily a bad thing if you're doing it for the right motive, if you do it for the glory of God and not for yourself, so everybody will feel sorry for you because your life's difficult. Well, yeah, that's going to get burned up in the wood. That's going to go into that category of wood, hay, and stubble. If you're enduring trials and persecution for the glory of God, then there is a crown of life. This one gets a lot of uh, press in the Bible, if you will. Uh, there's a lot of mention of this crown of life, James 1:12 being one of them. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved... Notice he faces a judgment. Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The book of James being completely about persevering under trial. So when is this judgment going to take place? The most likely time for a judgment seat of Christ, a, a Bema seat, a judgment of only believers in Christ, the most likely time for that to take place is sometime after the rapture of the church, because that is when all believers in Christ over the last 2,000 years uh, are going to be gathered together in one place at one time, that will happen instantaneously at the rapture of the church, as we have seen, which uh, culminates the church age and is not the beginning of the tribulation period, but rather is something that will take place before the tribulation period begins. Personally, I believe the tribulation will, will begin sometime shortly after that. But at any rate... We will all be in one place at one time in the presence of Jesus Christ. And well, that's a pretty likely time for us to face that judgment. Now, how are all of the literally billions of people who have trusted in Christ over time going to be able to stand before him in judgment? That's a great question. Uh, Outside of this world that we live in, there's no such thing as time. God lives in eternity, that not having time is something that we can't uh, comprehend, really. But it's something like that. I'm not uh, a uh, physics theorist, so I don't really know how to explain that to you, other than it's outside of time where God dwells. And so, uh, yeah, six billion or however many Christians have ever lived, uh, whatever that number is, can stand before Jesus Christ in judgment because it's outside of of time. And uh, then, as is pictured in Revelation 19, we will come again 
with Christ in these garments of white, an indication that while we've already faced the judgment, we've been given our reward and we're able to come back with Christ to the earth for him to establish his kingdom. So that's the first judgment that you potentially could face. Uh, If you are a believer in Christ, you will face this judgment, a judgment of reward. And we could also, should also think of it as a judgment of a loss of reward, potential loss of reward. And it ought to be motivation for us to live the Christian life. Now there is also, the Bible also teaches another judgment that we call the passing under the rod judgment. And this one is exclusively for Jewish people, all Jewish people who have lived according to the scriptures will face a judgment before the kingdom begins. Uh, The Old Testament makes very clear that this kingdom Future messianic kingdom is essentially for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, God's people, a nation and a kingdom of his own making and uh, for them. And there needs to be a determination whether or not they are able, Jewish people are able to enter into this kingdom. And it is described in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, verses 30 through 38. And notice that it is at the end of the tribulation period. Ezekiel 20 and verse 30 says, Therefore, God speaking to Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and play the harlot after their detestable things? Uh, When you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, you are defiling yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Oh, and I think this is the wrong passage, (laughs) unfortunately. It is Ezekiel 20. Always a good idea to have it marked in your Bible. Verse 33, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, And with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. So there it is on the passage. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Does that sound like what we're learning about in Uh, Revelation, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod 
and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, and they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. This passing under the rod, God is going to gather the Israelite people of all times, we will see. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 makes that pretty clear that people, Jewish people, are going to be raised again to face this judgment before the kingdom period begins, after the wrath is poured out. Very clearly, tribulation, judgment, kingdom. That, that is the series for the Jewish people. Daniel 12 one, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Daniel, Israel, will arise and there will be, notice this, a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Again, a division before the kingdom begins. Righteous people go in. Unrighteous people are excluded, even among the Jewish people. And that happens after the wrath is poured out. God has in the tribulation period, God has this judgment for Jewish people whether or not they will be able to enter into the kingdom. Jewish people of all times, according to Daniel chapter 12, they're going to be resurrected and gathered to the Lord in the wilderness. They will pass, if they pass under the rod, they will uh, be allowed into the kingdom. If he does not allow them, uh, they will not be included in the kingdom again pre-millennial, pre-kingdom coming of Christ to the earth to make this determination in judgment. They will pass under the rod. There is also a judgment that is for uh, Gentile people as to whether or not they will enter into the kingdom. And this is a judgment for Gentile people who are alive at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus, again, makes that very clear in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. You can read about that. Gentile people, the nations, being judged as to whether or not they can enter into the kingdom. Matthew 24, Olivet Discourse, Jesus describes the tribulation period. Uh, just a, a very basic framework uh, events that will take place and him coming again. And then in Matthew 25, he gives kind of a series of, of parables, if you will, describing some things about this tribulation period in the kingdom. And then he says in 25 and verse 31, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne this is uh, literal language here. Jesus is going to come again to the earth 
and he's going to sit on a throne. Bible tells us that throne is in Jerusalem. It's called David's throne a lot of times. All the nations, ethnos, the term there, will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right hand. That's the good side to be on. And the goats on the left. The sheep will enter into the kingdom. The goats will be excluded from the kingdom. Notice he's making that this determination before he says anything to anybody. He has separated them into the sheep and the goats. And then he begins to lay out uh, uh, kind of the manifestation of having believed in him is that these people, Gentile people, during the tribulation will be willing to risk their very lives to essentially help the Jewish people during this period of tribulation, demonstrating the fact that they have trusted in Christ, and then they will be allowed into the kingdom. The goats, as pictured here, the unbelievers did not do that. They were not willing to help the Jewish people because they will a lot of times pay with their lives for doing that. They were unwilling to take that risk because they had not believed in Christ. They didn't understand what was actually taking place. So Gentile people at the end of the tribulation, again, Matthew 24, Jesus and the Olivet Discourse describing this seven-year period of tribulation. Then he talks about coming again. Then he's going to sit on his throne and he's going to Uh, probably after he has judged the Jewish people, then he will be in Jerusalem and he'll judge the nations and uh, the righteous will be allowed into the kingdom and the unrighteous will be excluded from the kingdom period. And then the fourth And final judgment that is described in the scriptures anyway is kind of the one that everybody conflates into the one judgment of God. And that's that's the mistake that people make and leads to ideas like uh, post-millennial coming of Christ, kind of this idea, oh, there really is no tribulation. All of these... uh, kind of conclusions are born out of this idea that there's really only one judgment. Well, we see just between the passing under the rod and the sheep and the goat judgments, well, there's some big, there's some big differences there. Jesus's throne, for example, is not going to be in the wilderness, which is what was described in uh, the passing under the rod. It's going to take place in the wilderness. Sheep and the goats will happen in Jerusalem because that's where Jesus's throne is. So obviously that's two different judgments. The judgment seat of Christ, only believers are pictured there. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It's whether or not you've believed in Christ and, and any person can believe in Christ, an obvious distinction between both the passing under the rod and the judgment or the sheep and the goat judgments, which will both take place physically on this earth. Judgment seat of Christ will take place in heaven. Another very obvious distinction 
between these judgments. And that brings us to the great, great white throne judgment, which again, in terms of timing, is very obviously different than every one of the other judgments that we have seen. This is a, the, the great white throne judgment described in Revelation 20 in verse 11. Notice the language. Then, in other words, next on the, on the chronology, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the uh, cheery words that the Lord has there for us in Revelation 20, verses 11 uh, through 15. And notice the language there. Then I saw this. It, when we get to Revelation 20, we'll see it's very clearly laid out. Six through 19 chapters as we're studying tribulation period. Jesus comes again at the end of the tribulation period. Revelation 20, you only have to turn a couple of pages over there. Uh, and then you will see and Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6, this idea of a thousand years is mentioned six times. Then there's going to be a 1,000 year period where Satan is bound in heaven. He's cast into the abyss. When Christ comes again, Satan is cast into the abyss for a thousand years. And there, that's why we call it a millennium, a 1,000 year kingdom of Christ upon the earth. Then Satan is freed for a brief period of time. He is defeated finally and fully cast into the lake of fire. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne judgment. Very, very clearly distinct from the sheep and the goats. Very, very distinctly from the passing under the rod that happens in the wilderness before the kingdom period, very clearly, both of those judgments before the kingdom period, definitely distinct from the judgment seat of Christ. These are uh, unbelievers who are coming before the Lord because they are judged based on their deeds. The books are open uh, you want to be judged based on whether or not you're good enough to get into God's uh, kingdom for eternity, God, uh, life with God forever. Well, just disregard everything I've said and go for it. Try to see whether or not your deeds are going to match up uh, with God's standard. Uh, the news is not going to be good. The sea gave up, verse 13, the dead which were in it. 
all of these people who are standing before God in the great white throne judgment are cast into the lake of fire for eternity. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is. It's kind of everybody else who's ever lived, uh, who hasn't believed in God. Uh, You will face the great white throne judgment and your deeds are not going to measure up and you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. Now, there are all kinds of uh, questions that can be uh, uh, raised. You know, well, what about the righteous during the millennium? When are they going to be judged? Uh, You know, the Bible gives us a lot of the details. It doesn't give us all of the details. But nevertheless, it gives us enough for us today to uh, make a determination of what we want to put our faith in. Do we want to put our faith in ourselves or do we want to put our faith in God? And the fact of the matter is the Bible tells us that we can know for sure as people in this room and under the sound of my voice, wherever it's going, we can know for sure what judgment we will face and whether or not we are going to uh, pass the test. How can I be so positive of that? Well, because I believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that He has revealed these things to us so that we can know with 100% certainty whether or not we will pass God's test in the end. It is an objective fact. It's not something that we have to worry about. I don't have to wonder whether or not I am one of God's elect, as it were. I don't have to wonder whether or not I'm going to be a good enough person to make it through the fiery judgment in the end. I can know with 100% assurity because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me how to be a saved person, and it is by faith in Jesus Christ. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, that's the verse that every Christian knows, ought to know. Uh, And because it lays out the truth so absolutely plainly. It doesn't say that I have to be uh, uh, the perfect person. In fact, it says exactly the opposite of that. It says that I need to believe in Christ and I will not perish, but I will have eternal life. Acts 16, 31 Paul with the Philippian jailer who asked him the, the, the question, what must I do to be saved? Oh, well, do you have some time to take some notes? Because uh, you know, this could take a while. Paul, <laughs> no, Paul doesn't say that. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, why is his household saved? Well, the rest of the chapter tells us because you're going to go and tell your household and they're going to believe also in Christ. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith. 
It's by grace because it can only come from God. He offers it to us because the price has been paid on the cross. That's grace. The gift is there. You receive it by way of faith, not of work, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, Jesus himself said on so many occasions, that's what the book of John is all about. Believe, believe in me. Jesus is imploring people to do. Uh, Jesus and with Martha, one of my favorite parts of the Bible, John eleven. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That, that's the question. Do you believe this? Not do you believe this and promise to go to the right church every Sunday and give every time you go and say your prayers three times. No. Do you believe this? If you do, you will live and never die. Very clearly, the Bible teaches us that. So we can be sure this uh, acronym, sure. How can I be sure about salvation? Well, first scripture says so. God's word tells us how to be saved. It says that we can be saved by faith in Christ alone. And furthermore, it is based on the ultimate sacrifice. Salvation is not based on what I do, what I don't do, what you do, what you don't do. It's based on the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. First John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Did Jesus really die for me? Did he die for you? Did he die for the most vile sin that you can possibly think of? Oh, according to the Bible, he did. He died for the sins of the world. It's, it's based on the ultimate sacrifice. We can also be sure because it doesn't rest on me and my ability to keep God's word. It rests on Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It doesn't rest on me. It doesn't rest on you. It rests on what Jesus did so we can, so we can be sure of our salvation. And we can also be sure because everyone is invited. There is no person that is beyond the reach of the salvation of Jesus Christ. You don't have to wonder whether or not you're elect. You don't have to wonder whether or not Jesus died for you. You don't have to wonder whether or not Jesus wants to live with you forever. Yes, he does. According to his word, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. the spirit and the bride say, come and let everyone who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to come up with the money to pay for this great vacation in eternity. Jesus paid the entire price so we can be very sure of whether or not we will pass this judgment that we face in the future because scripture says so. 
It's based on the ultimate sacrifice. It rests on Christ. And every single person who's ever lived is invited to live with Christ forever. So yes, we can be sure. We face judgment in the end. Every one of us does. The Bible makes that very clear, but we can know uh, for sure whether or not we'll pass that judgment based on Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for the truth of the scriptures that uh, so clearly presents salvation through faith in you. I just pray that we would be motivated to live for you because you have made salvation possible for us. And just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us in that endeavor in this week to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah. 1 Thessalonians uh, 5.24 says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. No, it doesn't. That's what it says. But first it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day.